Hey. As much as I'd like to do my best Chris Farmond impersonation, I don't think I'd get very far, and I think you would recognize that this is a different voice today. My name's Josh. I produce the Truecraft podcast, and no need to worry. Chris is still the host, of course, um, and he's still the main voice on this episode. We're just going to be trying something a little different with the intros for the next week or so. Now let's jump into the episode. We're going to be talking about pricing and distribution. Today's guest is Mark Bjornstedt from Drecker Brewing out of Fargo, North Dakota. We talk about some different ways of thinking when it comes to scope of distribution. We talk about the concept of premium pricing, and Mark tells us why Drecker doesn't see the process as selling beer to distributors. All right, let's get into the episode. They, they might come for the beer, but then they, they stay for the food. Both of us were like, I'm going to own a brewery someday, starting at like 18 years old. There's no time in my life that I didn't think, oh, this would be a good time for a beer. All right. Mark, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Good. Adam? Hey. Oh, I might be on mute. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> Well, I'm back from a nice two, long two-week vacation, and I'm very rested. I We had a marathon of recordings before I left. Remember that, Adam? Now you're on mute. I got I got construction going on in, in front of the house and behind the house. <laughs> so, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, you, uh, yeah, we did do, we were on a roll there, weren't we, before you went away? It was exhausting. <laughs> it was a marathon for sure. It's good. It's good. All right, Mark, I want to introduce you and, and thank you for joining us here at the True Craft Podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about, I'm not even going to try your last name. How do you pronounce your last name? Bjornstead. Bjornstead. All right. So for all the people listening, we have Mark Bjornstead from the one and only Drecker Brewing in Fargo, North Dakota. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of fun talking about all these things that built up to this. So I'm excited for today's conversation. Nice. Very, very good. Okay. So I got a hundred questions about Fargo, North Dakota, but before I get to that, tell us about Drecker. Give us the history. Give us your elevator pitch. Sure. So, um, you know, I'm not one for backstories on breweries. I think, I think a lot of us are in this for the same reasons. Um, you know, really the reason we do this is all around the experience. Um, we think that something really magical can happen uh, when you have a, a good place that gets together good people, and when you put good beer at the center of that, um, that catalyzes the types of things that we think we need more of in society that we want to be a part of. Um, so we, we work on trying, trying to focus on creating a beverage that brings people together and a space that, that fosters that. So that's who we are, and that's what we try and do in every shape. Um, we started in 2014. Um, with a group of us guys that had that shared vision for uh, how powerful craft beer could be and, and what you, how you could build a community around it. Um, we're all from the Fargo-Moorhead area. Uh, we love this, this place, and we wanted to make this a place where we wanted to stay and keep it weird and have fun. And what was really great was that about around the time that we were talking about starting the brewery, um, a lot of other just parallel creatives were also doing the same thing. And so, um, you know, Fargo was always a really great place, but I think around the time we started, there was just so many other things going on that there was kind of this creative and cultural explosion in Fargo. And it's really this cool 
upper Midwest island of, of some funky, weird, and, and, and great stuff going on. Would you say that Fargo is like Bozeman, Montana cool? Or well, I like... mean, like <laughs> there's not as much good stuff to look at here. You know, it's North Dakota is a is a new definition of flat. Um, but, but I love there's there's also nothing more beautiful than that like that perception that a wheat field almost looks like an ocean. Uh, if, if people have never seen that before, it, there's something beautiful in that in that too. So it's different. It's cool. I actually uh, totally love twenty below um, winter days much more than I like 85 degree summer days. Uh, so this is my place and I love it, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun and cool, uh, cool place. I think it's a really fun place for people to see, to kind of almost dive in and become a local of a really cool community. You know, Fargo is a quarter million people town that feels like a 50,000 person town or even smaller. It's just, it's a really great place with awesome people. Good. Wow, you're an evangelist for Fargo. That's great, man. <laughs> We've had to tell the story quite a few times. People, what to, 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 what does your tap room look like in December, and what does it look like in July? Give give the listeners kind of a view of like humans and heaters yeah. and stuff like that. So, um, our our brewery and tap room is in a um, it's an old uh, locomotive maintenance warehouse building. It's this giant brick tons of windows and skylights building. It was built in 1880. Um, and so it's this incredibly warm, uh, aged and scarred building. Um, and so it has all this character and soul to it. So if you come here in the summer, we've got this killer patio. We've got a full parking lot. People are hanging out outside. Um, it's kind of like bustle and activity. The building will be full of light and sunshine everywhere. It's, it's beautiful and it's fun. Um, if you come here in the middle of December, uh, it is like what you'd imagine is that like outpost beer hall in the middle of like a winter storm where you, like, you pull into the parking lot and the building just glows in the dark and it's full of people that are getting together, getting warm, getting, you know, sharing, sharing beers together. And it's that, if you guys have heard that Scandinavian philosophy of Huga, H-Y-G-G-E, it's that, it's like the practice of being warm and comfortable. And, uh, and we just see a real, uh, personally, I think the best, um, embodiment of like our community up here is on the coldest nights when the place is packed and it feels warm and it's these warm lights in here. And you, you get that sense the second you pull into the parking lot, it's, it's kind of glowing out into the night. Dude, I want to come to Fargo, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to visit. I want to visit Fargo so bad. You're selling me. You're selling me hard. Tell us about your rig. Oh, Adam, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just want uh, where the where the name comes from, and then the link to uh, Vikings and stuff. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, as uh, as you guys introed, my my last name is Bjornstead. Um, you know, we're all kind of Scandinavian culture up here. A lot of us, you know, um, that's a that's a huge part of our heritage around here, um, and it's something that we like to hearken to. Um, but we also wanted a brand that was relevant or didn't have to meet anything on its face if we started selling beer anywhere else in the world. Um, we had no intentions of that, but we didn't want something that was only locally, uh, you know, context. Yeah. So uh, Drecker is the way it's written right now is uh, it's kind of a mashup word between the old Norse word for a Viking dragon ship. So that's the old battle Viking ship. Um, and what's really cool about that is in our community, there was a um, there was kind of this dreamer in the late seventies and eighties who had this vision of building a Viking Viking ship from hand, 
Um, his family and sons got together on this. It's called the Yumkumpship, which means homecoming. Um, he built it, uh, took it up to Duluth, which is you know right at the point of Superior, not too far from here, and sailed it through the Great Lakes and on to Norway. And it's this amazingly trying and, and celebrated journey. Um, and that's a huge part of uh, the, our history and our culture here. We've got a giant museum that's got the ship in it. So we loved making that connection to the old Viking, uh, Viking heritage and that, that ship. Uh, but then Drecker in its other roots and the way it's currently right now, it, it has that root of the verb to drink, which is Drek. Um, and in, in Icelandic, it, it, it has a slang term to mean what it is to hang out with your friends and like drink. So it's, it's kind of the camaraderie around drinking or the practice of drinking and sharing with your friends. And, it, and we'd already kind of gone down this path of naming the, the brewery Drek or Drecker or something like that. And then we found that out and that just lined up perfectly with, with our, our mission of uh, trying to catalyze those moments where, where more beers get raised together. You know, we, we don't just believe in the contents of the glass. We, we believe in what happens when all those glasses get raised together. And so that's where the name Drecker comes from. It's also like one of very few old Norse words that you can like pronounce and it looks okay. It has a, a couple vowels in it. So um, that's where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yep. Do you guys experiment with any Aqua V beers or have you all tried to reproduce that? Um, we get, there's been lots of talk about doing uh, Aqua V like barrel aging afterwards. You know, that, that anise flavor is pretty mm-hmm. polarizing. <laughs> so we, we haven't done it yet, but uh, I, I think doing like a Aqua V inspired like spritzer would be kind of fun. Yeah. At the, what's the beer festival that happens in Boston and then San Diego? It's, it's an like invite extreme. only. Extreme yeah. beer fest. Yeah. So we're going yeah. to Brooklyn this year with that. They do it like Brooklyn, Boston, and I think you're at San Diego or LA. Yeah. That would be I, a fun one to test out there. Well, so I was, I was there with a brewery who a Scandinavian brewer and he put together an Aqua V beer and it was, it was received very well. It, it tasted just like it. Um, That's good to know. Yeah. Awesome. T- tell us about your rig at, at Drecker, what, what size brew house do you guys have? What size of like, capacity do you have? Tell, tell the listeners. Sure. So uh, we brew on a 15 barrel four vessel system. Um, not the biggest thing in the world, um, but we make, um, we, we turn that thing constantly and it's all custom designed for the way that we brew uh, sours and our hazy IPAs uh, and all the weird stuff we want to make that brew house do. And currently uh, we're brewing at, uh, a, a pace for around, I think it's about 11,000 barrels a year. Um, we're a little over 10 with that. And, uh, and that's our capacity. <laughs> we are, uh, we did an expansion in August and within three days of those tanks being here, they were full and they've been full ever since. I think that's the thing we talked about a lot, Chris, is that we have uh, very, very high tank occupancy usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ha- how did you guys fare during COVID? Um, you know, COVID was crazy. Um, you know, it was, um, our beers do really well in package. Uh, we, we actually prefer to package our beer just cause we like to do the artwork and we can, you know, we can control it a little bit where it goes. So, you know, canned beer went through the roof, um, in there and we'd already had several outside markets kind of teed up and ready to go. And so when the tap room slowed down or draft, 
um, cut back a little bit, we just tipped everything back into cans and poured on. And, uh, it was, it was a wild ride trying to keep up with that. The other thing that was just nuts during COVID was merch sales. Um, you know, we've always done, um, you know, really well as a percentage of our taproom sales and merch, but Holy crap, we would, we would drop a pair of sweatpants that we were going to do and sell it out in like two hours. And, um, it, it was insane. Uh, just a, just a dynamic shift in what we were doing and how we were doing it. And then, you know, it was also, it was also challenging just from keeping everyone's mind limber, staying healthy as a crew, um, still finding ways to celebrate and have fun. But, you know, our, we've got an awesome team up here and we got creative and we had socially distanced movie nights out in the, you know, out in our backyard when we were closed and it just, whatever we had to do, we, we had as much fun as we could and we held on for the ride. That's great. So today I want to talk about wholesale strategy and, and more specifically pricing, which we'll get to in a bit. It's always been my understanding that a brewery is going to be most successful when they penetrate narrow and, and, and close to the brewery. So I always said 15 to 30 mile radius. And depending if you're in a rural location, you could expand that, that net out. But I really believe that the winning philosophy for distribution is to own your back, own your own backyard, own your own market, and then start to expand out from there. What does does Drecker subscribe to the wide and thin or the narrow and deep when you guys uh, wholesale when you we distribute beers? Uh, you know, we definitely follow that wide and thin. Um, we're we're going all over trying to grab markets that we think are fun, help build the brand, uh, a place where we can, you know, toss in the, the cool, weird stuff that we do. Um, and, and, and find a, find a click in, in that area. And then, um, we're not trying to go in there and grab, grab a permanent IPA tap handle or look, care about shelf space. Um, we actually try and tailor it so that our beer sells out almost immediately after delivery and we don't have to worry about that stuff and it keeps it fresh and fun and people have a cool time with it. So that's, that's usually our usual game plan. Mm-hmm. How many markets would you say you're in with this strategy? Oh, I think we split it up into about just under 20. Wow. If you were located in a, I'm, I'm not uh, a major market mm-hmm. such as, well, any major market. Yep. Would, do you think you would have curated the strategy differently? Um, you know, I think it still works for that. I certainly don't think we would have found it. In, not in the same time frame that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was part of the reason why when, when COVID hit, we, were, we just kept doing what we were already doing. Um, so it was really easy for us. And I think a lot of, a lot of breweries that were taproom only uh, or kept as much as they could taproom only, you know, they had a national brand just with Instagram and trading, um, but kept it pretty tight. Uh, they all shifted into that model. And I think a lot of them are going to stay there because how much it does build the brand and, and how, um, the, you know, the cost of sales really isn't significant when, when whether we have five markets or 15 markets, it's the only issue on that is more of a regulatory thing, just managing that stuff. But um, we found this model because, we wanted to make a certain amount of beers. We didn't really care what our distributors were asking for anymore. We, we wanted to make super weird, crazy beers, and we wanted to f- 
find enough people that wanted that so that we could, you know, turn it through the brew house and, and keep working on that. And that's where we first kind of opened up our first outside market. And then that was going well. And we just kept growing with that as it went. And so that was when we were in our original brewery, you know, in a downtown spot with a 10 barrel brew house brewing 2000 barrels a year. And we just kept growing with it ever since. How many distributors do you work with over those 20 markets? Um, it's probably about 17. Wow, that sounds like a lot of lot of work on the back end, the, yeah. the logistics side. Well, if you think about it from, so we don't, I'd say we don't sell beer. Um, you know, we, we tell every distributor what they, here's what we allocate for you. We, we try and define a, you know, an amount of beer and a, and a number of SKUs that we're going to drop every two weeks or every month on a, on a market. We, we try and keep every market the same. So our schedule is that we release, um, you know, four to six new beers every other Friday at the brewery. Um, and then those are all kind of scheduled for dropping in all these markets that next week. So it's always cycling through, it's always going out. And we, we're just telling the, we're just telling the distributors, you know, here's what you can get. Here's what we have. That's, we work together to, to dial that into the market, um, you know, based on how many their, their top buying accounts and what do they need to get all these to everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's, it doesn't really matter to us if it's, um, you know, five emails that we're sending out or one it, it, at that point, it's really not that much more work to manage it. And we've picked really great partners in all these markets too, that they get, they get the way we're doing it. They're doing it with other people too. And, it, and it's working really well. So, um, it just, it doesn't have, we don't have sales quotas. We don't, you know, we're not trying to, we're not doing a ton of education. Our customers are educated on what we're doing. So the part in the middle doesn't need to keep selling it to the next person. It's already pre-sold. Actually, that's the only is every beer is pre-sold to our distributors and pretty much by the time they get it, it's all pre-sold to the retailers. So um, uh, how much do you support the distributors then? You don't have people in the market and, and how far away, or do you have people in the market and how far away is that furthest sort of market from your home base? Just to give, give me an idea. Sure. So, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you all the places we go. We, we cover uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, kind of in a traditional distribution model, we've got, um, you know, we cycle through those markets a little bit more. That's where we do the majority of our draft and package, you know, our draft in, and, uh, in that regional area. Um, but then Wisconsin is actually our biggest state that we biggest state market where we're sending the most amount of beer. Uh, we just launched Chicago last weekend. Um, and then it's Pennsylvania, New York city, um, DC, Virginia, Arizona, San Diego, LA, San Francisco, Portland, the state of Washington. Um, and then we, about once a month, we're sending beer either to the EU or to the UK. And we don't, we have um, one salesperson and then I take team all of that stuff with them. Cool. So we, we spend a lot of time you know, repping the market in festivals or getting out to those areas, you know, our goal is to at least be out in one of those spots once a year. Um, but COVID we got, we got creative with how to manage that by proxy. Um, and that's going well too. Yeah. So, so I'll be in DC in two weeks up there visiting some friends. Will I be able to find a can of Drecker or once it's allocated and it hits, it pretty much sells out within 48 hours. 
Yeah. I, I mean, that's pretty common to, to sell through that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have some tap accounts around there that, you know, they save it for special events or we send a couple out there and it's kind of sprinkling it in their cycle. But yeah, we've got some really good liquor stores out there that there might be some available. Mm-hmm. If, especially if it falls on, I think we, sh- I think we ship to DC about once a month. Okay. Yeah. Back to Adam's point about supporting the market with reps. That was our, that was our biggest reason for coming up with our philosophy of narrow and deep because we saw when a brewery exited their market and, and opened up a new market, didn't exit their market, they opened up a new market, they saw an immediate spike in sales. And without the support, without the traditional just brouhaha-ing with these distributors, the product flopped. But it sounds to me like your model doesn't even play on that field. You guys play in a completely different arena and really allocate to continue to keep the Drecker brand and name relevant where people love crazy big beers. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw very early on that people were, that crap beer consumers were not necessarily loyal and that's not a bad thing. They're, they're promiscuous and they always want whatever is new. Yeah. Um, so our philosophy was what if we can be the brewery that always has something new? What if, if that's how we get a loyal customer, by always having something new. So that's where, that's where the idea started was that we want to drop, you know, 10 to 20 beers a month uh, on, on stuff, all these rotating beers. And um, so then finding out how to do that, you know, we can't drop eight SKUs on a liquor store and expect them to hold eight shoots for us all year, you know, on a, if those aren't flying out of there, people aren't asking for it. Um, so, you know, we go into a market and look for the top accounts, um, you know, the size of the market, what's the minimum number it's going to take of, you know, if we want to put four SKUs on this initial drop, what's the minimum number of cases it's going to take to get everyone one case or to get them their minimum number so that it's not going to sell out and be too cute, cute, but it enough gets enough gets sampled in there. We Mm -hmm. want the minimum we want, we want to just drop the minimum to that market. And then we trust that. That will, if our product holds up and, and we're creative and we give people the experience that they're looking for, that that'll burn through the beer groups and the people will start talking and the liquor stores will start sharing. And then the next time we do a drop, there'll be more word of mouth that brings people back. And we can slowly over time, we can creep some of those numbers up and find the sweet spot for each market. And then, and then it just rolls. We just keep dropping new stuff. It doesn't take any maintenance on that. Um, our Instagram sells our beer for that market. Um, and then we just keep going. That's great. And you said new, new stuff. So like, is every drop a different beer or do you have a, um, recurring releases? So we have about, um, we have this mixture of uh, what, what, what most gets nationally distributed is, is a mixture of IPAs and, and fruited sours. Um, we sprinkle in a few of our traditional beers, but, you know, we're also not, you know, we've got a, you know, we've won medals for our Pilsners and lagers and stuff, but, we're not going to take our lager to New York city where they have a ton of other just really great, well done lagers. And that's what, you know, there's, there's a lot of congestion in the market for that. And honestly, I don't, I just don't, how far can you stand out with a, you know, classic perfect Pilsner? Um, you know, I mean, Bierstadt's made, <laughs> made a business out of it, but that, that's not what we're looking to do. So we just don't take those beers to, to other markets. We take, we take a beer that's going to stand on its own or, or stand out for us. 
So uh, we're dropping probably, we have, well, within those IPAs, we try and drop a new IPA every month. Um, and then we're putting out maybe three to six of our 60 different IPAs that we make. You know, we just keep cycling through all these IPAs, um, keeping them fresh and fun and, and cycling through those brands. And then within our, our fruited sours or the, our heavily fruited beers, we have four different series that we do. And so there's a smoothie sour series. There's kind of this decadence, uh, like chocolate Sunday sour, we call that's chonk. Um, we do one that's kind of pie or dessert themed. That's slang de jour. Uh, and then we have plop, which is a overfruited adjuncted seltzer. And so those mm-hmm. ones we're doing, uh, new ones of those beers every two weeks. And then, so there's always every drop there's, you know, there's a new brains, there's a new slang, there's a new plop, there's a new chunk, and then a bunch of IPAs. And that, that builds a pretty big pyramid when, <laughs> when you're putting up like what, what the Drecker's Drecker beers were that were dropped that week. And yeah, that's cool. Let's move over to pricing because that's always a big question that I get all the time in a conversation I'm having as far as how do you set your wholesale pricing? Who, especially when you leave your market, what can that, what, what can the other market bear and really what's the methodology behind uh, the pricing? So let's start with who sets your pricing. Uh, I, I do all that. I, I write all the recipes, set the kind of strategic release plans, and then and set the pricing on all mm-hmm. the beers. Okay. And how, how are you determining this price base it, it, when you're going out so like to other markets? Let's say San Francisco, for example. Uh, the price of a beer in San Francisco back in 2013, you know, uh, a pint was eight bucks in, in a tap room. Uh, whereas in Florida it was four, um, you know I, I'm wondering what the wholesale what, did San Francisco experience the 9.99 six pack back then, what, and I know you guys distribute mostly in 16 ounce four packs. So my question to you is is, and I'm rambling here, but what how do you determine the price? What goes into that? Sure, um, you know we're definitely not um, taking the approach of what can we get for this beer. Or, this is super popular. Let's see, let's see where the fatigue is on this pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to be as honest as we can about it and take the inputs, um, look at our overhead on that, on that beer and, and what all goes into it. And I have, um, I have some thresholds that I try and play within on, on margin for, for those pricings. And we set a price and we roll with it. Um, when we look at, when we look at like New York city versus, um, you know, Milwaukee, um, we always have to be a little bit conscious about what the average liquor store is taking for a markup. What does that distributor want? And every once in a while, we just have to, we have to needle in the price just a little bit. Otherwise, you know, we might be leaving a couple of dollars a, a case on the table. Uh, if they're going to do some, you know, fat markup on it or a really low markup, or we're not pricing it right. Um, but for the most part, it, um, you know, there's not much variation in our pricing, per case anywhere across the country. Got it. Would you be willing to share some of your FOB pricing with us, with the listeners, just for reference? Sure. 
So, like, what's the average FOB of one of your fruited sours? Um, so like the to it to a wholesaler. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be about seventy dollars a case. Seventy. Okay. And then what about your your hazy IPAs? Um, in the probably sixty. Sixty. Okay. And these are these are sixteen ounce cans, sixteen yep. ounce four packs. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's um, that that's great great information, and I and I think that that falls right in line with, um, well, that's actually a little bit higher than what I typically see for breweries that are going narrow and deep. Uh, there's typically maybe some more volume, more relationship, more uh, chemistry there yep. versus the appeal of getting something from, from super far away. So that is, that definitely is on, on the, on the higher end. Um, but I would say the fruited sours is probably right in line with what I, what I, what I see there. Um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. There's, do you ever receive pushback from distributors or accounts? Uh, we got real big pushback the first time we set out this strategy, which was about maybe two years into our company. We, you know, we were doing a lot of experiments in our tap room, but we weren't distributing a lot of that. Uh, we also weren't uh, packaging beer outside of draft. Uh, so when we launched cans, we also had kind of said, screw it on these flagship ideas or being a regional brewery, which is, I think, what we felt a lot of pressure to turn into. Um, and so we totally reworked our brew schedule and our beliefs. And we just decided that we wanted to make these very certain types of weird beers. And we have to price them at a certain point. Otherwise, we'll go out of business doing you know, losing money, making these beers. And honestly, if no one buys them or cares about them, we'll also, we're comfortable going out of business on that end. So, um, we, we kind of charged forward on that and our distributor was not real happy, um, with that model because as they should have, they were advising us against like, that is not, not a model that's present in this market that is pricing way outside of this. You know, no one, even if you're making these super niche IPAs, um, no one wants to be paying $17 for an IPA or, I mean, now we're charging 20 for them. Uh, when nine ninety nine was this line you weren't supposed to cross. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, we got a lot of pushback from that, but, um, I think that we, the first time we released one of those beers, uh, we sold a keg to one of like the really great craft beer bars in our town. That's one of our best partners. Um, they were, they were always willing to try out what we wanted to do. And our distributor was, um, you know, very cautious of that price and wanted to tell us to not expect to ever sell another keg of this. And we said, that's fine. If we would sell it all in the tap room that we, we want to make this beer, this is what we want to make. And uh, the next week they showed up and said, we want every keg you've got. And, um, and I happened to tell them too, that the price is going up. Uh, also, and they said, it doesn't matter. We need every keg you've got of that. And so I think if the beer speaks, um, speaks for it, um, the pricing will fall in line. Um, we get, we got pushback from a few liquor stores, you know, here and there when these styles were coming out. Um, but it doesn't take very long to, um, to figure out that, that when, when everyone's applying a set margin, uh, to a product and our beer sells for two times, sometimes, you know, what, what their, what their other best product is selling at, um, they're making a lot of revenue dollars off of, off of that, can and it takes up the same amount of floor space it sells through quickly everyone figures out real quickly this is something you can jump on so that that pushback um takes care of itself when it comes up 
Um, I just wanted to go back to FOB setting. Like, do you reverse, do you back into an FOB? Like, how do you practically come up with that? Do you think, right, I want a customer, this is a reasonable price for this beer, distributor margin, take that off, retail margin, take that off. And then does that give me a, do you then compare that against your cogs and think, oh, well, that seems, that, that kind of makes sense. Or how, how do you like practically go through that iteration? Yeah, so um, we got really lucky in that, uh, we saw a couple mistakes happen um, with with some other friends where they were pricing beers off of what they needed to sell it for at that moment. And then in six months, they had grown that up to need to hand off to a distributor. And they had never factored in that, you know, that taking a distributor's margin into, into play. And they had to go through a price increase and it didn't go over well in the market. And they didn't even take the full price increase. So they, you know, they lost money on it, weren't able to grow right away. And um, so we always price our beer for, you know, where we want it to hit on the shelf. And then knowing, I, I always look at, um, and especially now because we are so distribution heavy, um, that I, I the, the part I look at is the worst case scenario. What's, what's our FOB to a wholesaler going to be? And I, that's the one that I watch the pricing on. Um, and then we just set that, uh, price to the consumer across the board. So we have markets where we where we sell directly to the retailers and we self distribute. We have markets where we work through wholesalers and we sell a lot of beer through our tap room. We try and keep the same price to the consumer, um, knowing that I mean obviously we have way more overhead costs to sell a four pack in our tap room than we do just to sell it to a wholesaler. We also have you know cost of sales to do it into our self distribution markets. So even though we're retaining a larger margin. Um, you know, we need that larger margin to cover those costs. And so I watch all of those things, but the only one I really use to set the pricing is that FOB to wholesaler and knowing that that's something that, that we can live with. And that's a, that's a, um, that'll be a price that will work. Makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's like the way that we do it. You kind of back into it and then yep. that kind of work. Um, cause if that doesn't work, then that beer is not economically viable, you know, <laughs> through, yep. through wholesale. It's, it's just incredible to hear you talk about markets. So counterintuitive to everything that I think about. It, just right now, you mentioned you have more overhead to sell a four-pack out of the tap room than you do in, in distribution. And that's that's just very, like I said, counter counterintuitive to what I, I usually think. But your model's isn't working. It, isn't it true? Um, it, I mean, well, we, do, we spend more money to sell a four-pack in our tap room than we spend to sell it to a wholesaler that's an email that we send there but you know in, in our tap room we're paying paying our own staff to be there we're we're putting the lights on we're you know all those things so so you need that higher margin to make it work there right but from where i come from it is once it's sold to the distributor it's not sold it is it, it still needs yep. to hit the shelf and then it need and then the consumer needs to pick it up you guys have done away with that massive hurdle that most other breweries deal with and said, once it hits the distributors, it's gone in your mind. It's sold, and that's very comforting. So I see what you're. I see what you're saying as far as the overhead. I I just view leaving you the traditional leaving your home market too early as uh, really dangerous for most breweries sure. that aren't pushing the envelope with pricing and styles and trying to stay top of mind. So well, I, think, it's just, I think you need to be cognizant of where the endpoint of your your involvement with this financially is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, yep. I think to go to what Chris is saying, the further away from your home market you get, the shipping eats into your FOB. And then on top of that, you've got to support that market. Um, and that's where you get into this very expensive um, model where you maybe don't have the CEs to, to support a market, but you get this chicken and egg. You've got to go and support that market to get the CEs up, but you can't afford to support the market until the CEs are up, right? That's mm. That's yep. um, you're fortunate that you've built a model. Yeah, you've done a great job building a model that you don't have that chicken and egg situation. Yeah. Yep. I, I always say that you know distribution or manufacturing is either a price or a volume game, and craft breweries really can't play in the volume game. They have to play in the price game, and you guys have executed on that tremendously. You've done done a very very good job of of, of doing that. Uh, very cool, Adam. Any other questions for Mark? Um, no, just in what you were saying there, I've been thinking a lot about the disruption of various industries, and they and like craft beer disrupted, you know, macro beer, and and the way that you do it is always through premiumization, right? Look mm -hmm. at whatever um, whatever disrupting industry is. The more recent one is that healthy cereal, like ten dollars a box of cereal. That's like over three times <laughs> the really? price. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't I won't say the names of the brands, but it's like bloody hell. I, I, that's, that's a lot. But um I think what, what's tired. healthy about it? Yeah, it doesn't use any of the ingredients that traditional cereal uses. So that's oh, a Adam, that's a great example because the 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 explanation we give people when they ask why does our four pack cost $22? My question is you shouldn't be asking me why it costs $22 to make this four pack. You should be asking why it costs 50 cents for that Bud Light. And you shouldn't ask why it costs $12 for a premium hamburger at your restaurant. Why does it cost a buck and a quarter for a, for a, uh, a quarter pounder at McDonald's? That, it's not the high end. We're being honest about our pricing. We're using real ingredients and, and we're, we're doing something that's very transparent. It's the bottom end that is questionable. And, and, once, and I've never gotten pushback from that scenario. And I, I didn't think of that myself. I heard that from, from some other people, but it's the best way to look at that too. It's, it's not the question of why does this thing cost so much? It's, it's why is the other stuff comparatively so cheap? I think that's really well said. Right? Yeah. That's awesome. Very good. We're going to end on that, on that killer uh, note there. Tell us where we can learn more about Drucker. Uh, our website is terrible. Uh, we've had a website launch in planning for like two years now. Hopefully it's someday soon. Um, you know, I think Instagram is where our content lives. We're, we're a brand that loves to show behind the scenes and, and show what we do. And, and, you know, people that make beers like us and craft beer, it's a beautiful thing to watch. So check us out on Instagram. We're always engaging on stuff like that. And then uh, if you want to wander onto our website, send us an email, uh, contact us. We love chatting with, chatting with people in the industry and, and learning and, and talking about what mistakes we've made. Will you be at CBC this year? Oh, yeah. We love CBC. We love meeting all of our suppliers and friends out there will be in Denver for sure. Awesome. All right. We'll definitely need to grab a beer. Yeah, I'll be there too. Cool. Totally. Nice. All right, guys, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. It's always fun chatting, Chris. Yeah, buddy. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of true craft podcast links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. The show is produced by Josh Barnhart and sponsored by Small Batch Standard. Small Batch Standard is the premier financial agency 
built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax compliance, and growth consulting. Visit SB Standard today to learn more and request a discovery call with the team. Peace out.